This is episode 75 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. We all know that death is a part of life, but it's the part of life that we, as a society and individuals, often would rather not talk about. And yet, not talking about it isn't making it go away, and in fact, makes death and dying so much harder for us to process. Kathy Cortez Miller joins me today to talk about how to bring life into conversations about death. If you're not a longtime listener to the show, you might wonder about why we're talking about death. One of the reasons I do this show is to share a wider range of the human and creative experience than just the Oprah version. I most want you and us all to see that we're not alone in whatever adversity we're going through, and you can triumph too. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit SaneBox.com forward slash giant, and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com forward slash giant. Alrighty, Creative Giants, I'm pumped to introduce you to Kathy Cortez Miller. Kathy is an unconventional educator, palliative care provider, and researcher with a flair for talking about death and dying, and she talks about it a lot. Kathy has been teaching and researching at Lakehead University for over a decade, inspiring and challenging the future healthcare providers of tomorrow to be prepared to care for individuals who are dying and their families in all healthcare settings. She leverages her experience as a cancer survivor and as a palliative care provider to challenge us to have the important conversations about dying, death, and life. In Kathy's world, death and dying is not the elephant in the room, but is an integral part of life that deserves and demands acknowledgement, respect, and even a bit of lightheartedness when called for. I'm excited about where this conversation will go today, and I'm excited about our ability to talk about something that we often don't want to talk about, but so desperately need to. Kathy, thanks so much for the work you do in the world and for really advancing a topic that I don't think we talk about nearly enough. Um, So thanks for joining me today to talk about it. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay, so, you know... When we're thinking about what we want to be when we're an adult, um, it's probably not like a death educator or someone who talks about death, right? That, that normally, I mean, I don't know if you wrote that on your career book, right? I want to do this. So how did you slide into this position that you're currently in? 
<laughs> yes, it, it was not something I, I wrote in my career planning outline. And in fact, I often say that um, dying and death kind of found me. Um, in fact, I can narrow it down to uh, during my undergrad, I was really interested in adolescent mental health. And I wanted to work with kids and I wanted to have fun and be creative. And it was in my third year and we were applying for clinical placements and I had my eye on the prime placement and one of my professors came up to me and said you know what Kath there's a lot of competition for that placement she's like in fact I'm thinking you might want to try something else and how do you feel about death and I remember at the time thinking really how do I feel about death how does anybody feel about death and next thing I knew, I found myself as the inaugural placement student at a brand new palliative care unit in a hospital in southern Ontario in Canada. And I loved it. I was completely excited to be there. We laughed more than we cried. We never doubted that our work was meaningful. And we talked about things that most people would rather run to the hills than have conversations about. And after that, I was hooked. After that, you were hooked. So you mentioned something that's striking, like you laughed more than you cried. Yes. And we normally don't think about death and dying as something that generates laughter as much as tears and, you know, other things like that. So um, take us through that journey. So you're right, your, your professor's like, maybe you should try this. And mm -hmm. at that time, how did you feel about death? <laughs> well, it wasn't something I had thought a whole ton about. About on the surface but I actually experienced the death of a really close friend when I was in high school mm -hmm. uh, my very close friend Heather and she died of acute leukemia in a period of 11 days we'd literally gone from playing tennis one afternoon to her being admitted to that hospital that night and dying 11 days later and at that time that completely rocked my world I had no context no understanding of how any of that worked and I just sort of knew at that point that was this was something I needed to think more about and I needed to figure out because I knew on some level it happened to all of us and so I think subconsciously it was always in the, my background that because of Heather because she was important to me and because I didn't understand so much about what happened in that period of my life that I was always kind of thinking about that but I still wasn't prepared when that professor asked me what did you think what do you think about death <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, I was reading an article that really got me thinking. This was maybe four or five months ago, um, maybe longer. Um, and it was about the funeral industrial complex, mm, right? Yes. Which I never really heard that sort of thing and thought about just sort of the entire industry and, eco and economics of death and dying, right? On that side of things. Um, you know, but as I was prepping for this interview, I was thinking about sort of the, the medical like death, you know, complex sure. as well. Right. And we're at a point to where we don't talk about death. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were joking before we started where I think it's like death and debt are two of the things that we don't talk about. We'd probably rather talk about our sex lives <laughs> than death and debt. Right. Um, I'm not sure if that's true. Maybe Gallup will do a poll on it. Right. Um, Probably. But how have we gotten to this point such that death is one of those like taboo topics that's beyond sex, you know, beyond some of these other things? How do we get here? I would like to say it's because we don't see it. 
but we actually see death a heck of a lot. So if you think about the last time you turned on your television or went to a movie, death is in the forefront, but it's almost the othering of death. So the death that I want us to talk about does not involve vampires. Mm -hmm. It doesn't involve uh, people only on the other side of the world, um, although it can involve them too, but it involves you and me and people who are living on our every day. And so I think what we've done in terms of the normalization of the death experience is that we've ever othered it. We've actually handed it over to the healthcare system when we've medicalized a very normative life event that is dying. So when you think about the birthing process, so I have two children, and when I found out I was pregnant, I celebrated, I went to the bookstore, and I had a choice of a bazillion books to choose from, and I was gifted a bunch of books, and all my friends and, you know, the community I was in, everybody wanted to talk about being pregnant, and they wanted to know what I was planning, and I had access to healthcare providers who gave me choices and talked to me about it and did all this kind of stuff, and I could say, you know, who I wanted to be present in the birthing room, I had some discussions around medication, all that kind of stuff. We do that about birth, but we neglect the end of our life. We don't have those same kind of discussions. And yet, we're all born, and we're all going to die. Yeah. Well, it is really interesting because we've also medicalized the birthing process, right? Where when we look at this, the, um, I think Angela showed me a statistic when she was um, back um, finishing her PhD in sociology, that something like 85% of births happen between 8 and 5 um, 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., mm-hmm. right? And that the only reason that would work, it, no, the only reason that would be is because that's when doctors are available and, you know, things like that. We, we basically regiment the birthing process yep. to fall within those periods. But we've also got the other book in as well, right, that's yeah. kind of put to the side. I mean, hmm. You're right. You know, that's a that's a very insightful point that we've othered it. And who was it that said like a single death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistics? It may have been Lenin. Um, that sounds right. Right. Where when we see when we talk about sort of the staggering death rate in Africa and Southeast yeah. Asia to a lot of things, it's it's like a huge statistic. We don't know how to process it. So we're like, oh, there are millions of people dying every day. Okay, it's over there. It's not really a thing as opposed to um, I told Kathy um, before we jumped on that that um, my wife, one of her friends is having a loved one that she's having to take off of um, life support today, right? Um, and that's a that's not a statistic at all, right? Um, no. it's you curl up on the couch about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this very weird asymmetry between our emotional recognition between sort of that statistical death and the personal death. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know that I have any point besides that. Um, but it's, it's a really insightful point that we see it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we just don't personalize it. No, we don't. And so it almost becomes something that doesn't happen to us or to our loved ones. And that when it actually does happen, we're unprepared for that time. And we don't know what to do because we're not learning to prepare ourselves. And to back up a little bit, you asked a little bit about why does that happen? Sure, it's the medicalization of dying and death that we've handed it over to the healthcare system. And not just in my country and Canada, but, you know, all of North America for a big part. But also because we don't have the opportunity to care for people in their homes the way we used to. Um, It used to be a normal experience that when a person was dying, they were at home, they were cared by their 
for by their family and for their by their community and people stepped up to do that and when there was a problem that's when the healthcare system came in mm. so it's not just a funeral industrial complex it's sort of the um assisted living um or you know nursing homes and things like that that we actually start the medicalization far before um, death happens. Now, what I wanted to bring in here is I want to make room for, you know, and, and we, we talked a little bit about Kristen Mikoff's um, episode yeah. where, where, you know, there's also untimely deaths, right? Yes. Um, where we don't necessarily have that intervention, that pre-intervention between sort of the health industry and death. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to make room for that, that that's not, that's, there's no, hmm, what am I going to say? I'll tell a story first. Good. Okay. Um, I was watching a show the other night called The Great Human Race, and this is by the National Geographic. And what they do is they take a um, experimental archaeologist and a, survi- a wilderness survival teacher, and they put them back into the conditions in which Homo habilis and Homo erectus um, lived and only got to use those tools and so on and so forth, right? And um, a very interesting show, but they bring out a lot of, I think, the part of the human journey that we forget. Like, what's, what, how would we live in the world without tools and food and light and things like that? Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I got me thinking about was in earlier forms of our societies and existence, death was like, there wasn't this sort of idea of death where you get to be, you know, 83 or 85 Mm -hmm. die and then everybody's like well he lived a long good life like that's the natural process like people just died at 17 they died at childbirth they died as kids like death was everywhere yeah but now death has gotten so far removed that it's like the natural path or this really tragic path like you mentioned with your friend and it's just not this real thing that's a part of the human condition Mm -hmm. right yeah and that's really what you know what got me thinking about um this episode is like how hmm, let's start let's start start with a how let's start with the why why should we take it back why should we have the death be a part of our you know everyday conversation or you know just not be this sort of closeted thing what why would we want to do that mm-hmm. well i think in in part is there's a, a really interesting shift going on right now is that we're thinking more about a public health approach to dying and death And we're not thinking about the public health approach around preventing it because we know we're living longer and better than we ever had before. And that is fabulous. But when we think about living longer and better, wouldn't it also be appropriate that we think about and make plans for so that we die better than we have before? And most people, and you mentioned the Gallup poll earlier, most people, when they respond to a Gallup poll, uh, 85% of them will say on no uncertain terms, if they're given the choice, they would like to die in their homes. And yet, we know that 70% of our populations in North America will still die in institutional settings. And that's not their choice. So that's one reason why we should be thinking about talking about this, making plans and putting things in place so that people can actually do what they want at the end of life. The other piece is that we tend to be really scared about dying and death. 
tends to be something we keep death in the closet, so to speak. And because it becomes a fear of the unknown, what's going to happen. So if we take some time and we normalize the experience, if we educate people on what to expect, if we talk about what's the physiology of dying look like, um, what can we do as a healthcare system to support an individual who's dying, um, what might be some of the things that they're scared of, what might they hope for still at the end of their life, we can have those discussions to get all that stuff out of the closet and to the forefront so that we can begin to feel better about that and to really focus on it as being a normative life event. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, the comedian John Cleese, perhaps you, you've heard this one, and he says, life is a terminal illness that is sexually transmitted. Hmm. So why do we do this? Because of that. Because life is a terminal illness that is sexually transmitted. And if we want to live life fully, we need to relate to that idea and incorporate our dying as part of our living. Hmm. We have several generations of people who are probably listening to this episode, right? We mm -hmm. have the 30-somethings, right? Yeah. Um, we have the, you know, maybe the 50-somethings, but we have different sort of people and stages of their lives, right? Where we have people who may be approaching, you know, um, the end of their days. We mm -hmm. have whose parents and, you know, aunts, uncles are there. We have people yeah. who are nowhere near that, like, feel like they're nowhere near that close. And we have kids, right? We don't, probably don't have too many kids listening to the show. But, you know, how do we have these conversations across generations? Like, what's a starting point um, to really open the door to the beauty of death and the natural part of it so that it doesn't become one of those things? Because I'm sure you've, you've seen it way more than I've seen it. I've seen it normally in the context of the military where – you know, you know, death is there. People talk about death, so on and so forth. But yeah. the, the time in which you really have transformative conversations is really close to the actual death event, right? Yeah. Before or after, so. right? And so people have to learn a lot in very, very little at very, mm -hmm. very time. So, you know, where would be that first starting point for people who have just not talked about this? Well, there's tons of teachable moments throughout our lives if we think about it. So starting out with kids, kids are fascinated by the idea that something dies. Like our seasons change. That's a changeover. That's a death, right? Um, most people, when you ask, what was your first experience of dying or death? It will happen to be with an animal or a family pet or something like that. And so that's a great time to talk about how things die, how when a relationship ends, you feel sadness, you have a myriad of different emotions to begin to talk about what happens to that. And also begin to think about some of the rituals that you can do at the end of life. I know um, good friends of ours, their cat just recently died and uh, they did a funeral in the backyard dug a hole and and shared some poems and talked about stories and my fr friend said it was the closest thing she'd been to a funeral in the last 15 years um, and it was a wonderful chance for her kids to talk about that um, I went and took my daughter to go see A Fault in Their Stars a couple of years ago when it came out opening night mm -hmm. and we were in the movie theater packed full with tweens and early teenage girls and there is a death that occurs in that movie I don't want to spoil it in case people haven't seen it and I sat there and listened to all these young women sob like there was no tomorrow and my thought was please do not let this be the only place that you're learning about dying and death. We need to use our movies and our books but we need to have a follow-up conversation with someone who can help us with that. 
people like me are living in the sandwich generation. I've got kids and I've got aging parents. Mm -hmm. And I look around and I think about, I, I belong to a book club because that's fun in my world. And I look at my friend's parents and one has died or a couple actually have died and some are sick and some are developing dementia. And we talk about taking care of them and feeling that responsibility. And that's when we need to start generating those conversations and sharing strategies. You know, I talked with my mom and asked her, I said, so mom, what, what happens when you get sick? You know, what would you like to have done? How would you like me to participate in that? What can I do to help you? Those kind of questions. And then my parents look around and their friends are dying. They are experiencing a death of a member of their community probably once or twice every month. Um, that might be a slight exaggeration. There was a, a bit of a run recently. I think there was four last month. Um, but they're hitting that age group where people are getting sick. And so by paying attention to that and having those conversations and grabbing hold to those teachable moments um, and using them as starting up our own personal conversations is a great way to do it. You have a lot of experience with people who go into a dying process and wish that they would have done something differently right mm -hmm. before it was too late and different things what are, can you share some of those things with us because again you experience it at a level that most of us don't yeah well, two things that I've learned, nobody at the end of their life has ever told me that they wish they worked harder or kept their house cleaner, which is a relief to someone like me whose home is uh, a, a bit of a chaos at, at times. But some of the things that they will talk about probably are not a big surprise. They will talk about wishing they'd had more time with their families, that they hadn't put on that, put off that fabulous trip or that dream plan that they were going to do, that they made things happen more in the moment. And often people will talk about saying that they wish they'd had a chance to say, I'm sorry, and I love you more frequently. Mm. Um, so weaving back in the, um, the medicalized event and just sort of the way in which um, I think this, this might be incorrect for you, but I think when someone dies or gets close to dying, there's a lot of normative assumptions about what's going to happen with that industry, right? This, you know, um, how funerals work, like just the whole thing, there's, because we, we've sort of outsourced death in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. right? Um, what are some ways that, um, hmm, what I'm trying to say is to have, a very intentional passing, right? You have to have a lot of conversations in advance, right? Because otherwise that engine is going to kind of take care of it and you end up in the default and everybody's grieving and nobody wants to have the conversations then, right? Yeah. Um, so what are some things that people can be looking for as far as conversation starters with, you know, their loved ones of any age, you know, of any age bracket, but just how to have a more um, intentional and sort of celebratory passing as opposed to just sort of the default that it's now become? Mm -hmm. Well, in Canada, we call it around advanced care planning, and uh, we have a bunch of different um, opportunities that we get out there and we and try and get people to think about that. And um, with Christmas just having um, 
past, we had a discussion around, you got your turkey at the table, have your advanced care planning discussion as well, because you're together as a family. And there were jokes around, you know, you're going to sit there and fight anyhow, at least talk about the tough stuff, you know, get that off the plate, so to speak. So there are a wide variety of different opportunities. Um, and I think it's not just your family that you need to be having these discussions with, but also your healthcare providers. And often, if you can correspond having those discussions together with both your healthcare provider and your family member or that person who's going to be the voice for you when you no longer can make your own decisions, that's even more ideal. And so ideally, at any time in your life, when there's been some sort of life-changing event, to begin to think about these and talk to people about what's important to you now. So I initiated discussions, you know, with my husband after our first child was born. We did it again after the second. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer six years ago. We did it again. And the thing is that it's important that the conversation doesn't happen just once because we grow when we change as individuals. And so our thinking about our own dying and death is going to change as well. So when we do this well, it becomes woven into just kind of part of who we are and the discussions we have with those who are closest to us. I like how you tied it to particular events in one's life, childbirth, you know, diagnosis of, of major medical illnesses that might not be terminal, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Different things like that, right? And so um, I have experience with this being a soldier in the past, right? You know that before you go on, <laughs> before you go on a deployment, it's time to talk about your will. It's time to talk about your life insurance. It's just time to talk because you might not come back, right? Yes. And so that creates that, you know, and, and whenever you have children, obviously that's a time to update your will, right? Update yeah. sort of, but I think what we're saying there is something in our life has changed and we need to prepare for the future, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I would probably slide in there. Anytime you know that there's a significant change in your life, yeah. it's a good time to prepare for the future. Yeah, or even a significant birthday. Um, I've talked to people who say, you know, on my 50th, I'm going to make sure that I review all my plans and I'm going to do it again on my 60th or whatever the case is as a process to keep yourself up to date. Yeah, well, I was going to say, and this reminds me of a conversation with, um, I think, Luna, but it may have been um, Jacquette, but um, it might not resonate, but it was one of those things where we like, we recognize as we grow, our financial plans change. Like we're different people in time, right? And mm -hmm. so what you might've been saving and investing for when you're 35 is different than when you're 45, right? Yeah. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, the point from that is like, there's always, I'm a planner at heart, right? So I always like planning, always like thinking for the future, always like updating things. And so um, it's not formed to me, but just thinking about those different ways is like, you know, you don't always want to tie your will and finances to death. And mm -hmm. right, um, it is good to think about your life at certain points in time and say, okay, what, what are my contingencies for the future? What do I want to have happen for the future? So on and so forth, right? Um, but what came up for me while you were talking is, um, so this goes back to a good friend and client, Scott Dinsmore, died in September of 2015. Yeah. So last September, okay. unexpected young guy, 33 years old, right? Um, tragic accident on Mount Kilimanjaro, right? Oh. And you know, what's come up for me several times since then is death serves as a reminder of the preciousness of life, mm. right? Time is finite and we're all here for a certain amount of time and no one knows how much time that is. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the beauties of death is that it does provide that poignant reminder that like time matters. What do you do here matters. And the people yeah. you're with matter now and you're not going to have them forever. So make the best while you've got it. Right. Yes. Um, you know, obviously that that's, that's one lesson. What are some other, I mean, 
I think part of the reason we avoid the death conversation is because it seems to be one of those all bad situations. There's nothing really that good, right? Unless you've done a lot of spiritual like reflection, unless you've just done a lot of things. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of like celebratory sort of things, not a bunch to laugh about, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you really dive into it. And yet at the same time, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you did more laughing than crying, right? Um, So what are some other, what am I trying to say? Um, death is a, it's a neutral sort of part of the process. It has some upsides and downsides, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned sort of the reminder of the preciousness of time and life and the relationships. What else is there that you've learned, you know, um, that we could share with people just to be thinking about the way to make, that's what I'm trying to get to. It took me a while. Um, how do we make conversations about death, not be doom and gloom, but something that's more joyous, something that's more celebratory, something that's actually, something we want to do versus something we have to do? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I like to frame the discussions that we have around our hopes and dreams, our plans at the end of our life as gifts, gifts that we are giving to those people that we love and also gifts to ourselves. And so to me, that framing changes it from a thing, something you have to do because your healthcare system requires that of you. But you're doing those who love you a big favor by having those discussions because it's going to be easier for them down the road. Not easy, but easier because they'll have an idea of what you hope and dream for and what kind of legacy you want to leave. The other piece is that idea of the legacy planning. We talk about that from a financial perspective, as you've been bringing up, but what about the legacy that we want to kind of leave other people in terms of our dying. And I worked with a woman who actually had um, been a nurse educator, and she very much framed it that she wanted to use her dying as teaching for her students as well. And so she'd invite them into the room and talk to them about her hopes and her fears. She talked to them about pain and symptom management. She talked to her, them about how crappy it was to have somebody do the activities of daily living, but that that crappiness was lessened when people showed her respect and joked around with her and looked at her as a human being and not the disease process. So all that kind of stuff was part of the legacy that she wants to leave. My aunt died um, when I was pregnant with my first daughter. And uh, one of the things that was really important to her was that at her funeral, she'd been a high school drama teacher. And at her funeral, she wanted everybody to wear bright red clown noses um, at the conclusion of her funeral. And she was buried in a big Catholic church with all the bells and whistles that the Catholic religion affords. And we had to get permission from the priest and the bishop because she had everybody out there to be able to wear these clown noses. And that was an important part for her to plan. So it's the idea of figuring out what kind of rituals are important to you, that things that people can do so that you know that they will remember you as well. And those are all the questions that you can start to do to think about it as being more of a positive thing in terms of how you want to be remembered. How, what kind of messaging do you want people to have about what was important to you? Hmm. So I've seen this with some of my friends and some of the people I've talked to about this is there's this idea that, um, you know, you're dead and it doesn't really matter in a lot of ways, like what happens as part of your own ritual, but um, what matters is what your family, like what would make them feel best about the passing, right? And that's always been a challenging sort of line for me, right? Um, And I've I've joked 
half joked with Angela's like, you know, get a Folgers can, like throw the ashes in there, find someplace cool, dump them and move on. Right. Um, obviously like my family members would not necessarily want that to be the case. And she's always sort of rejected, but I'm like, I'm dead, dude. Like it's done. Right. Um, that, that, that part of my, of this Charlie's journey is done. Um, what's occurred to me though is, um, aside from that, I think we all overestimate the degree to which people are prepared to make decisions on our behalf for our death. Right. Um, and it's a, very um, tough emotional process. And so what I wanted to slide in there is no matter what that, what your legacy, you want your legacy to be, be is don't assume that other people know what that's going to look like. Um, Because it's kind of, you know, in that spirituality complex or in that religion complex, like people don't know what you really want to have happen to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I'm just going to slide that in there because I've seen that with in some other scenarios where people had zero planning and they would just figured, you know, um, I guess that people would know what to do and like people don't know what to do. No. So a couple of thoughts with that. People don't know what to do from um, a decision-making perspective before the person who has died and you've got your healthcare provider asking. And I think an important distinction there is that we're not asking, for example, if I had to make decisions uh, for my husband, and a healthcare provider said, hey, what kind of treatment do you want us to implement at this point? They're not asking me what I would like for my husband. They're asking if my husband could make that decision at this time, what would he want? So that's an important question. And that's why those conversations are so happy are so important because it alleviates a bit of stress for me because I know what he would want. And while I might want something totally different, they're asking what would he want in that moment. And I'm seeing an awful lot of things changing around funeral rituals um, after an individual has died. And I think that might be what you're talking about at this point. And I think um, I'm going to say you and I are within probably 15 years of each other, but I'm going to couch us into our generation is really moving away from the traditional um, funeral the way we did with perhaps when our grandparents died you know it was a big church ceremony uh it was a funeral home and in fact i remember being picked up in a limousine Mm -hmm. uh, from my home and driven to the church and then after the church we went to the cemetery then after the cemetery we went for lunch and it was hours upon hours and then people all came back to the house and you felt the support and you had this understanding that something big had happened and then you heard stories or little inklings of how expensive funerals were. And, you know, there was all these bells and whistles and there's an entire industry. But our generation's moving away from that. And people are saying, you know, I'm dead. I don't care what happens. But funerals, as you alluded to, are not necessarily for the person who's died, but rather it's an opportunity for those uh, people who love the person who has died to gather together and say, you know what, we loved her or him. And we want to help to take care of those people who are closest to that person. And so let's get together. Let's honor this moment, um, whatever that might look like, and, and show people that this person's dying, this person's life mattered to us. And so yeah. we're seeing a whole bunch of different ways 
to, for people to do that. Um, one story, if I can uh, share, um, is uh, I worked with a, a family um, on a hospice unit for a couple of months, and their dad was dying, and he had plans for his retirement, and he was going to take the entire family on a cruise, and this was going to happen, and they'd never been out of the country, and this was a big deal, and guess what? Dad retired, and two weeks later was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and a month and a half later, he was dead. The cruise never happened for him, but instead of having a funeral in, with all the bells and whistles, they had a small memorial service, and they took the money they would have spent on the funeral, and they went on that cruise, and every night at dinner, they placed dad's picture on the table of the cruise, so they did that, and that was the way that they honored the life. So I think there is a shift that's happening. We need to keep the ritual and to honor the life lived and to honor those people who love that person, but what that looks like can change. Absolutely. It, it can change. And, you know, I think as part of this conversation is to recognize that the closure process is not, a, is not rational. Mm. Right? It, it's not one of those things where, and, and the reason I'm putting that up is because you might make very logical decisions. Like I'm going to save money, right? I'm going to do that kind of whatnot. We're going to do certain things, right? Um, that make completely rational sense, but don't, but that doesn't provide people with a sense of closure and celebration and remembrance that they need, right? So just take that seriously. And what we're finding, actually, in terms of the traditional funeral model that we've had, an individual dies and generally three days after the funeral is held, well, that's not enough time for the idea that somebody has died to move from our head to our hearts. And so it's not unusual for people to attend funerals. And I'm thinking of some of the um, older women who I've worked with when their husbands have died, they have zero recollection of the funeral. So this very expensive ritual, which is geared towards a showing of support, completely goes by the wayside because the person hasn't had that time to begin to digest to be able to reconstruct what their life looks like and so the funeral industry recognizes this and and you know we'll now videotape um, funerals for people so that they can then watch them at home it's an, an attempt to sort of reconcile that but there's a wide variety of other things that we can do to help reconcile that because what we're finding now in, in the grief literature is that we don't really get closure. We don't get over somebody when they die. But what happens instead is that we move from loving and presence to loving and absence. And that's a huge shift. It's a change in relationship. And so that needs time and that needs ritual to help it. That's fantastic. I love the distinction between loving and presence and loving in absence. That's, that's huge, right? I'm going to reflect on that one. So thanks for that. And that's actually from Thomas Attic, who is a death philosopher as well. Yeah. Death philosopher. See, I missed that whole arc in, <laughs> in my philosophical training. Um, I, you know, I went the, the military route, which you think they would have like held hands, but apparently not, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> is, you know, about this topic, if you had to say one thing about it, like, you know, your one song about the death and dying process, what would that be for our audience? My one song. Well, when you were talking later uh, earlier about um, you know life being temporary, it was reminding me of the song "The Trooper." We're here for a good time, not a long time. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the message um, that I would like to leave with people is that we need to think and we need to reflect on and we need to 
analyze dying and death so that it will help us to live life more fully. Um, because I think we will develop a greater appreciation for both death and life by recognizing that it's an integral part of living life. That's amazing. Thanks so much for joining me today, Kathy. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Kathy. How might you um, have um, great reflections and conversations about death so that you live a more full life while you're here and so that you make your passing a gift rather than something that people um, avoid and don't want to talk about? Okay, until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.